Please uh, stand for the reading of God's word. Today's scripture comes from John 18, 28 through 40. Then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. It was early morning. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled, but could eat the Passover. So Pilate went outside to them and said, What accusation do you bring against this man? They answered him, If this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. The Jews said to him, It is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. This was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show what kind of death he was going to die. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord, or did others say it to you about me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. Then Pilate said to him, So you are a king. Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, what is the truth? After he said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him, but you have a custom that I should release one man for you at the Passover. So do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? They cried out again, not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber. This is God's word. Amen. If you have your Bibles, please open them up to John chapter 18. As we resume our study of John's Gospel this morning, we'll be looking at the last part of this chapter. Let's turn to the Lord in prayer as we open His Word together. God, we are humbled and grateful that You are here with us in our midst that by your mercy and your grace, you have condescended to us. You have come and taken on flesh to dwell among the people that you intend to call into your kingdom. Lord, we know that this is a kingdom of mercy and grace, and that you have worked in us to draw us near to you because you are a king of mercy. Lord, we pray that you would speak this truth to us, press it deeply into our hearts this morning as we consider these 
words from John 18. And we ask all these things in the name of your Son. Amen. Recently, I was watching a documentary about some of history's most notorious dictators. And something that that documentary emphasized was that there are certain characteristics and certain strategies that it seems like most of these ruthless leaders from throughout history share in common. Things that united them in their pursuit of power and authority. There are things like uniting the people that they seek to rule against a common enemy or convincing people that there is only one person who can solve those people's problems, so he should be given the power to do it. Different dictators, I think, do it different ways, I guess, but there's one thing that they share exactly in common. They hunger for power. They want control. They want to be served, to give orders, and to have authority. That's the way it started for every single one of them. It's a tale as old as time. None of history's most notorious tyrants were the first to hunger for power. That was Adam and Eve's temptation, the one that plunged them and all of creation into ruin. Though God had told them that they could eat of the fruit of any tree in the garden except for one, one particular tree, or else if they ate the fruit of that tree, they would die. The the serpent whispered to Eve, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God. So she took some and ate it, and so did Adam, who was there with her. The lie that tempted them to turn away from God was that they could be in control that they could call the shots, that they could determine right from wrong and have authority. Hunger for power and control is at the very root of the corruption of creation, and it reaches into the lives of all people. And we see that this morning in the passage that we're considering from John's gospel in chapter 18, where we pick up this morning, Jesus has been arrested. After spending the evening teaching his disciples eating a Passover meal with them, teaching them and preparing them for what lies ahead, praying for them and walking with them through the city, he came to a garden where he liked to pray. And while he was there, a band of soldiers arrives, hundreds of them, with members of the Jewish leadership. The Roman soldiers who arrive there in the garden that night are armed and they are ready for a fight, prepared to take Jesus into custody by force. And even though one disciple among the eleven who were there with Jesus drew his own sword and aimed to go down fighting, Jesus stopped him. Instead of a fight, Jesus gives himself up willingly. Rather than running, he stepped forward to meet his accusers. Rather than hiding, he spoke first and declared himself to be the one that they were looking for. Afterward, he was taken to Annas' house where he was interrogated. Annas, in case you don't know, is a member of Jewish leadership in Jerusalem, the power broker among Jewish leadership in Jerusalem. He had been the high priest earlier in his lifetime, and now one of his sons holds that post, a man named Caiaphas. So though Annas is behind the scenes, he is the one pulling the strings. But after getting nowhere in his interrogation of Jesus, Annas and the others who are there that night send Jesus first to Caiaphas' house and then on to the Roman governor's house. And all of this is happening in the middle of the night. John notes that for us in the beginning of our passage this morning 
when he tells us that all of this has happened in just a few hours because Jesus is being delivered to this Roman official's house in the early morning, which is any time between 3 o'clock a.m. and 6 o'clock a.m. And that detail reveals to us how rushed and ridiculous this whole thing is. It would be like if you were to get arrested at midnight, interrogated at the police station, and then brought to a judge's house at four in the morning for a trial in his living room without witnesses or any evidence. In our justice system, that conviction would not stand, obviously. So it's easy to see that the priests who are here accusing Jesus are not interested in justice or in finding the truth. They just want to be rid of Jesus because he has become a threat to them. They see the way that crowds flock to hear him teach. They hear the way that people talk about him, wondering amongst themselves whether he really is the Son of God. They remember how just a few days before these events, when Jesus arrived in Jerusalem, half the city turned out to throw him an impromptu parade, crying out, Hosanna, and blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. It was a cry of hope and confidence even that Jesus would be the leader that they had been waiting for. The priests see Jesus as a threat because the longer that he is allowed to carry on, the more people will turn to him and away from them. Left unchecked, his following would continue to grow and grow and grow, and their influence will shrink and shrink and shrink. It is a threat, ultimately, to their power. The hold that they have on these people because of their position and their perceived moral superiority. So they tried to silence him at first with some half measures. But when they've confronted him, it hasn't gone their way. He has publicly challenged them, arguing against them and even calling them hypocrites, disingenuous in their love for God. Each time that they've tried to stifle him, they've walked away embarrassed by him. So now they have resolved to silence him once and for all. No more half measures. And not just silence him, but stamp out his movement. And they have a plan for how they will do this. So they go to the Romans, who had long, away, long ago taken away their authority, the authority of Jewish courts to carry out capital punishment. Now they could have taken matters into their own hands. Scholars argue that the Roman officials would probably have turned a blind eye if they had taken Jesus outside the city and stoned him to death because keeping their subjects frustrated with one another and angry with one another was a good way to keep them subjugated. But these Jewish leaders don't, they don't go for that strategy. The priests and Pharisees and scribes, they choose to get a man named Pontius Pilate involved, even though it probably made them sick to do it. For most of his time as the governor of Judea, Pilate was a scourge on the Jewish people. He was the governor of this region, though he was originally from Spain and only got this job because he married the granddaughter of Emperor Tiberius. Records of his leadership record one blunder after another. So he was unqualified and well known for covering it up with cruelty and a general disdain for the people that he was charged with governing. He didn't even like being in Jerusalem. He didn't like being there. He only came to town 
for Jewish festivals like the one that's taking place right now, the Passover, because it was during these important holy days that there was most likely to be a surge of nationalism that he was there to keep in check. His first and most important responsibility was to keep the peace, to keep people from getting any wild ideas about freedom from Roman rule. And often, the only strategy in his playbook was brutality. So it says something to us, something that is significant, to see that the Jewish leadership here would go to him rather than taking matters into their own hands. But they do. They choose to swallow their pride here and go to Pilate, I think, for two reasons. The first is that if Jesus is formally tried and convicted by a Roman governor, then he will be easier to discredit. Since their goal is to stamp out the growing movement of his followers, they can't risk making people think of Jesus as a martyr. We know that they fear that happening because in Mark 14, the chief priests and the scribes were plotting about how to kill Jesus, but they decided not to do it at that time because they feared an uproar from the people. And the second reason is that they want Jesus to die in a very specific way. They want him crucified. Because according to Deuteronomy 21, anyone who is crucified is cursed by God. They don't just want Jesus dead. They want him under the wrath of God. And they want his followers, seeing that, to forsake him. So they go to Pilate. But when they arrive, they are careful to not enter the building. John says in verse 28, they themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled. They are observing an important tradition, though it's not a part of the law. The law stipulated that in various ways God's people were to be set apart and distinct from among the nations of the world. They ate certain foods and didn't eat certain foods. They observed particular rituals and festivals. They were instructed not to marry those who did not know God. It was a part of their calling to be distinct from the rest of the world. And over time, that instruction and that calling snowballed into something else entirely. Traditions developed that became their own law. We see that here because the reason that the priests do not enter Pilate's house is that they don't want to be defiled and prohibited from participating in the Passover celebration. So this rule that they've made up about not setting foot in a building with a non-Jewish person is not only a rule, but something that determines whether or not they are spiritually clean and pure before God. It is treated as a law handed down by God himself to his people, but it is their own. A rule created so that when they keep it, they can claim moral superiority. And the irony here is thick, and I think John wants us to notice it. Jesus' accusers are obsessed with the appearance of righteousness. They want everyone to know how well they keep the law. They are so obsessed with the appearance of righteousness that they even invent rules for themselves so that they can keep them and scorn others who don't. But even while they are so carefully observing their own made-up laws to appear righteous, they are violating God's law. When Pilate comes out to them in verse 29, he formally opens the trial of Jesus Christ by asking, what accusation do you bring against this man? What is he being charged with? It's a reasonable question, and one asked at the beginning of every criminal case. And it should be 
easy to answer, but they cannot answer it. They say in verse 30, if this man were not doing evil, would we have not delivered him over to you? If you ever find yourself the defendant in a criminal case, and you hear the judge ask, what are the charges? And the prosecutor says something like, your honor, would we be here right now if he wasn't guilty of something? You should be concerned in that moment. Jesus' accusers have no formal charges to bring against Jesus, yet they are here to demand his death. These men who consider themselves morally superior, who carefully observe the rules that they've made for themselves to reinforce the notion that they are more morally superior, not only bend the law of God, but they break it completely. They bear false witness about Jesus, claiming that he has done some unnamed evil deserving of death. Matthew even records in chapter 26 of his gospel that they were actively soliciting false witnesses to testify against Jesus, people willing to lie about him in order to secure a conviction. They make a mockery of the justice that God has charged the priests and the leaders of his people to uphold. In making this vague and duplicitous accusation against Jesus, they abuse the very law that they claim to uphold and obey. They're willing to do all of this, to work with Pilate, who represents an entire imperial system of oppression and who is personally responsible for an abundance of pain and humiliation among their people, and they are also willing to violate the laws of God all because they love power. They see Jesus as a threat to the power that they have, so they take drastic measures because love for power drives people to sin. Just as it did with Adam and Eve, the longing to be in control led them to believe things that weren't true, justify actions they knew were unjust, and ultimately set themselves against the God that they thought they were honoring. It is their love for power and their fear of losing it that has driven them to this point, and it will drive Pilate along as well, as we'll see he tells Jesus' accusers in verse 31, take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. He would rather not be bothered. And that may be at least partly true because they've arrived knocking on his door at four in the morning. But they will not be deterred. It is not lawful for us to put anyone to death, they say in verse 31. It's as if they're saying, like it or not, this is your responsibility. You and your Roman friends made sure of that. We can't take care of this on our own because you took that out of our hands. So, resigned to the fact that he has to deal with this situation that he doesn't really seem to care about, he goes back inside to where Jesus sits, still bound in chains, and he asks him in verse 33, are you the king of the Jews? Now, based on what we see here in John's gospel, it's a bizarre question that seems to come out of the blue. But Luke explains in chapter 23 of his gospel, that when the accusers brought Jesus to Pilate, they said, we found this man misleading our nation and for, forgiving, uh, for forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar and saying that he himself is Christ, a king. A lie to get, G or to get Pilate's attention. A man who is raising up a following who says not to honor Caesar or pay taxes to him is a sure way to bring swift action from any Roman politician. It's a lie designed specifically for Pilate. 
Because, of, of course, Jesus had said publicly in Mark 12 to give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar, meaning the money that had his face stamped on it. So we know this is a lie aimed at specifically getting Pilate's attention and getting him to take swift action and grant a conviction. But Pilate takes a moment to ask, are you the king of the Jews? He's willing to do the bare minimum to ask this question, but Jesus doesn't answer him. Instead, he asks, in verse 34, do you say this of your own accord or did others say it to you about me? Jesus already knows Pilate's heart, so he isn't asking this question to learn something. He asks it to make a point to Pilate. Are you asking because you actually want the truth, or do you care about the truth at all? By responding this way, the accused has become the interrogator. Jesus has turned the tables, at least for a moment. So we aren't surprised to see Pilate's response to Jesus is indignant and defensive. What we know about Pilate is that he was unqualified and insecure about his role as governor. So he probably interprets any question as insubordinate criticism. He says, am I a Jew? In verse 35, your own nation and your chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? He wants to know what has caused all this commotion, why the priests are so frustrated, and why this man, who they can't seem to bring any real charges against, should be put to death. In the end, though, Pilate reveals that as a judge and a governor, his interest here is only idle curiosity. It is not a search for justice or truth. He can see that the accusation is flimsy. If a judge has to ask the defendant what he did, then the prosecution hasn't done a very good job. He can see see that. He can tell that Jesus is not guilty. But he doesn't know what's really going on here, and the fact is that he just doesn't care enough to find out. Jesus tells him in verse 36, my kingdom is not of this world, which is to say it does not originate here. It does not operate the same way as yours does. But he is a king, the king of kings and the ruler of eternity. It's something you'd think, a statement like that is something you'd think Pilate would want to investigate. Jesus says he has come to proclaim the truth and that those who are of the truth listen to him. And then Pilate asks the most important question of his entire lifetime, a question that theologians and philosophers and great thinkers of every age have asked. And he's standing in front of the man, the one man capable of giving him a perfect answer. He asks in verse 38, what is truth? And then he turns around and walks out of the room couldn't be bothered to wait for an answer. It's almost like he asked this question more out of frustration than actual interest in the truth, because he actually isn't interested in the truth at all. He's made that much clear already. It's obvious that Jesus is innocent. It's obvious that the whole situation is an injustice. And Pilate even says to Jesus' accusers in verse 38 that he finds no guilt in this man. In chapter 19, which will open next week, he'll even try to convince them to drop their case against Jesus. So it's obvious that Pilate knows what the right thing to do actually is. He knows how a just judge would rule in this case, and he has the authority to do it, but he won't. Instead, 
He'll first send Jesus to be brutally flogged, hoping that that will appease this bloodthirsty mob. And then afterward, when it doesn't, he will send Jesus to be crucified. Pilate, who knew that Jesus was innocent, will rule against him because he had power and he feared losing it. He had been given the position of governor, a prestigious one and an important one in the world's most powerful empire, and he knew that it could be taken away. If he lost his grip on these people, if they rose up against him, he knew that the emperor would simply replace him with someone who could take care of things. Historical records indicate that his relationships in Rome were already strained, and he knew he was on thin ice already. So he chooses to appease the mob to get them to settle down. He will sentence to die the only truly innocent man who has ever lived, and he will choose the expedient path rather than the just path, all because he is afraid to lose the power and authority that he has as the governor of Judea. In this way, the chief priests and Pilate himself are the same. They fear the same thing, and they think that sending Jesus to die will solve their problems and secure their positions of authority. That is the folly of all who seek and cling to power, that they think they can succeed. There's an old poem which illustrates my point here. It was written in 1814 after an important archaeological discovery in Egypt. A fragment of a statue had been found in the sand in Egypt, and it was important because it was the only surviving artifact from the reign of one of antiquity's most powerful people. He reigned over Egypt for three-quarters of a century, expanded the Egyptian kingdom to its largest size, and oversaw an unprecedented advance in technology and society. Egyptian records indicate that there were lots of details preserved about his reign and about his accomplishments, but until the early 1800s, there was no physical evidence of him that remained until a piece of a stone statue of him was discovered. And an English poem was written to commemorate the discovery, and I'll read part of it to you, just a few lines, which say, And on the pedestal, these words appear. My name is Ozymandias, king of kings. Look on my works, ye mighty, and despair. Nothing beside remains round the decay of that colossal wreck, boundless and bare. The lone and level sands stretch far away. The point of the poem is clear. For a time, this pharaoh was the most powerful man in the world. People lived whole lifetimes under his reign. For them, it was impossible to imagine a world without his authority over them. He commanded vast armies and a nation that stretched from the Horn of Africa to Asia, Asia, Asia Minor. For 75 years, it was impossible to imagine a time when his influence wouldn't shape the world and his name would not invoke fear. But he died, and everything that he built began to crumble. No matter how successful he was or how firmly he clung to his power and authority, it all withered away until nothing was left except a crumbling statue buried in the sand. So though the chief priests and Pilate are desperately clinging to the power that they have, their effort is futile. The authority that they have is fleeting. It never lasts, no matter how desperately people cling to it or how effectively they use it. 
That's true for pharaohs and kings and emperors and presidents and governors and priests alike. It is true for everyone with one exception. Throughout this chapter, there are signs, little, little signs, that Jesus is the one with true and lasting power. Before his arrest, we read in verse 4 that he knew all that was about to happen. And when he said to his accusers and arresting officers, I am he, the armed soldiers who are there to arrest him were knocked to the ground, we read in verse 6. His word carries such authority and power that when he speaks, they simply cannot stand against it. When he says in verse 9, if you seek me, let these men go, he is not only selflessly concerned for the welfare of his friends, but also ensuring by his word that they will be safe. He is referring to part of the high priestly prayer in verse 17, where he said that he had not lost, would not lose any of those given to him by the Father. There is no power on earth, no vast army that could have changed that. After Peter strikes one of the arresting officers, cutting off his ear, his ear, Jesus heals the injury in verse 10 and says in verse 11, shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? Nothing will steer him away from obedience to the Father. Nothing will deter him from where he aims to go. And though the scene ends with him in chains, John wants his readers to realize that Jesus is the one with the power. Later, when he refuses to yield to his accusers, he knows that it will cost him his life. But he reveals that he is the one who is upholding the law while the priests abuse it in verse 23. Though Jesus is the one who is mistreated, there is no mistaking who is superior and who is afraid. Now, as Jesus is dragged before Pilate, his fate is sealed. The Jewish leaders could have stoned him to death, to death, as they later would with a man named Stephen, but they would rather see Jesus crucified, a punishment only carried out by the Romans. And even this, even this, even the way that Jesus would die is subject to the authority of his word. When he said that he would be lifted up, he knew that he would be crucified. No power in heaven or on earth could change what he knew would come to pass and what he willed to take place. Again, the irony of the scene is significant. Jesus, John rather, wants us to see that the one in chains is the one with all of the authority and power. He does not share it. The one being spit on, ridiculed, humiliated, abused, and who will shortly be hung on a cross and surrounded by a mocking crowd. This is the one with supreme authority. His is the kingdom which will not crumble and turn to dust, whose power will not fade and whose name will never be forgotten. His word will stand and he will remain. And so he says to Pilate in verse 36, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not from the world. His kingdom is different from every earthly kingdom. It does not have their flaws or their fear. And that is why he says, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. Even though Peter did not want Jesus to be arrested, 
And he did want to fight. He even drew a sword and started swinging. This is not what Jesus is referring to. He is talking about the vast host of heaven, the legion of angels who are at this moment held back from coming in furious rage against Pilate himself for dishonoring Christ and subjecting him to such shame. And they are withheld at Jesus' own command. He is given that command because as a king, one with real authority, Jesus wills to lay it down and make himself a servant. Unlike the chief priests and Pilate, he is not desperately clinging to his status as a ruler. Instead, he has come to willingly lay it down. That is what he meant in Mark 10.45 when he said, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. The one with true and supreme authority did not wield it to serve himself, but to serve the deepest need of those who belong to him by faith, to ransom them from the very wrath of God himself. That is what we see portrayed for us at the end of this chapter. Pilate, who can see no guilt in Jesus, remembers that traditionally one prisoner is released to the Jewish people, no strings attached each year at the Passover. And at the moment, he has two men in custody. One, a man that he thinks is innocent, a man he knows is innocent, and another, a known murderer, according to other gospel accounts, and an insurrectionist. Barabbas was a robber and a violent man who was evidently a menace to society. And Pilate assumes, surely these people will not want him back on the streets So he asks, he's looking for a way out. He's looking for a way out. And he asks them, do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews instead? But they refuse. They demand the release of Barabbas in the last verse of this chapter. So a guilty man goes free. And an innocent man takes his place before the executioner. That is how Jesus wields his power and authority to set the guilty free by taking their place, our place, before the executioner. This is our king, the one who does not cling to power but lays it down along with his life in order to set free those who are guilty. He knew the words of Deuteronomy 21, that those who are crucified are cursed by God, but he chose the curse so that we could be free from it. That is the heart of the gospel, which the Apostle Paul summarized when he wrote that for our sake, he became sin, who knew no sin, so that we might become the righteousness of God. This is the king of kings, and he does not cling to power for fear of losing it, but in mercy gives his life for those who are citizens of his kingdom. Friends, if you do not know him, Let me tell you that there is no more trustworthy person, no more selfless servant, no more compassionate king than he is. He has laid everything down to set free those who turn to him by faith for salvation. Rather than serving himself as the priests and Pilate do, rather than taking the expedient path, he has chosen this path, the one that leads to destruction and death, so that you can be set on a path that leads to life. So if you do not know him, I plead with you today to turn toward him and cling to him by faith. Doing so demands 
that we relinquish control. And that is never easy. As it was for the priests and Pilate, we will be tempted to cling to whatever authority and control that we think we have. We could cling to that. We could try to keep a hold of it and perish. The control that we thought we had will be left to crumble in the sand. Or we can yield in humility to the one who used his infinite power and authority to give his life to save ours forever. If you do know him, learn from him and from the selfless example that he has left for us. This is what real leadership looks like. It is not self-serving, and it is not fearful. It is sacrificial and submissive to the will of God, confident in the word of God to do all that God has willed. May that be what the watching world sees in us, not a desperate clinging to power which will fade and status which will be lost, but a resolute confidence in the unstoppable love of God to bring to glory all those appointed to salvation, not only by supreme power, but also by the great mercy of our King. Would you pray with me today? Father God, you are holy, and we stand before you guilty of treason, but you have made a way for us to be set free, to be called innocent, and even to be welcomed into your household as sons and daughters, and we praise you today for the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, who is our ransom, so that we might come into your presence, not by our work, but by his not by our obedience, but by his, and not by our worthiness, but by his mercy. We give you all we have to offer, the praise of joyful and thankful hearts, and we do so in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen.